we're a startup. We maybe should have had gory detailed policies that a Fortune 500 company would have that was 300 pages long, but we didn't. You know, we had processes and we had ways that we did things. And but my first reaction might have been, oh, shoot, I should have had a policy on that. And then it was like, wait a second, Louise, you're a startup. We have a process. We follow it. I'm comfortable with it. But this set of questions is geared for whether they're acquiring a big company or a small company. So don't be thrown by the questions and be transparent and just be honest. This is Retained Learnings, a podcast where Canadian finance leaders share strategic advice and potential solutions to answer some of the finance department's most important questions. I'm your host, Rob Kazam, the founder and CEO of Float. Thanks for listening, and I hope you learned something from today's episode. Going through the acquisition process can share a lot of similarities with raising capital. Initial conversations usually happen long before final contracts are signed. Meetings and negotiations can take months or even longer before a deal is in place. But there are also some significant differences. The due diligence process during an acquisition will likely be extremely detailed. Confidentiality is also a play. And after the acquisition is complete, there will likely be changes to the business and the finance function. So in this episode of Retained Learnings, we're joined by Luis Hucal, the CFO of Inkbox. Bic, known for everyday essentials like stationary grooming products and lighters, acquired Inkbox, a direct-to-consumer semi-permanent tattoo brand in January of 2022. Luis was a part of the Inkbox team that helped close the $65 million deal. In our conversation, she shares how the acquisition went from initial talks between Bic CEO, Gonzalo Bic, and Inkbox CEO and co-founder Tyler Handley to closing over a year later. We learned about her role as CFO in the due diligence process and some valuable advice for finance leaders who will be involved in an acquisition. Well, Louise, thanks so much for joining us today on Retained Learnings. Maybe to start, tell the listeners and myself a little bit about your background. I joined Eekbox in the very, very early days. When I started, it was really just Tyler and Braden and a couple of their college buddies on a couple IKEA tables in the basement of the Ryerson DMZ and had been introduced to them through just a mutual contact. And they were looking for some financial support. And I was sort of in a transition phase and looking for something to do and started as a very much of a part-time help us out while you can and really quickly evolved into a, a full-time gig. Prior to that, I had, I spent my early career, let's call it, in with some big Fortune 500 kind of companies in a relatively traditional financial roles, but probably a little bit more on the analytical um, new business development side. And then also spent some time with a ad agency as the CFO of an ad agency. Great. Well, we'll jump right into it. Talking about Inkbox and the acquisition, how much experience did you have going through acquisitions in your finance career prior to this? A fair amount. This one was certainly a little bit more personal to me because I had been involved from the very beginning. Back in my days, in, in big company days, I was involved in some pretty large transactions as well as some small transactions, both in the due diligence side at one point in time, I actually was the CFO of a small division of Baxter Healthcare that was responsible for integrating a half a dozen or so of their recently acquired businesses. 
during my agency days, the agency that I was with had just been acquired, what had been private and had just been acquired by a publicly traded larger organization. So lots of integration experience and lots of experience in terms of business transitions. But again, this one was certainly more personal and given my my long tenure with with Inkbox and the the smallness of the team. Really exciting. How exactly did the acquisition come about and when did the initial conversation start? Gonzalo, the CEO of BIC, actually reached out to Tyler uh, more than a year before the the actual acquisition took place. They were looking into the skin creative market. We're obviously big in that space. It started out as very much of a get to know you kind of conversations that evolved over time. Became obvious that they had some interest in our business. We we were not in the be acquired headspace at all at that point in time, and were still comfortably funded by our venture partners. Were kind of in conversations on on expanded funding and on that front, and and really had visions that we wanted to take the business to the next a level or two beyond where we were at before we were going to entertain acquisitions. So didn't you know kind of brushed off those kinds of early conversations from them. And then, you know, but Tyler and, and Gonzalo just stayed in touch. And as the business evolved, um, the conversations became more serious. Got it. So it was, it was quite a while before it really kicked off. More than a year. Definitely more than a year. How do you make the decision to proceed? Was that a distinct moment? Did they make an offer you couldn't refuse? Do you remember what that was like? We definitely spent a period of time where we will we were dual streaming it. Um, we had a fairly serious joint partnership, joint agreement that we were working on that had a lot of value and was quite interesting. Kind of developing at the same time that the bit conversations became more real to all of us too. We spent a fair amount of I don't know a few months kind of doing this dual path and. You know, I think just over time and over the conversations, it be, became more obvious to everyone that the big alternative was probably the better alternative for the business in the long run. And, you know, kind of switched gears to take that one more seriously. As the CFO of Inkbox, what was your role in all of this? And, and how did you support the, you know, the entire acquisition negotiation and process? Tyler Handley, the CEO. He handled, I would say, real negotiations around price and structure. I was very much involved in, obviously, the modeling for the business, kind of setting out what our expectations were for the business, answering questions on past history. You know, there was a lot of looking back at some of our past financials as they were trying to get comfortable with where we had been and where we were going, um, and was also involved with the lawyers in terms of structuring the purchase agreement and kind of reviewing all the clauses, making sure we were comfortable with how the deal was coming together. What was the due diligence process like? Insane. And I had not been involved in a transaction like this before, but they did a rep and warranty insurance on the transaction, which in my understanding is becoming more and more common. Um, and what it does, so that the practical implication of it is that the diligence is we're not convincing the acquirer that our business is solid and the risks are known and understandable and quantifiable, but a very dispassionate third-party insurance company. 
And there were certainly moments where, you know, we and the big folks were looking at each other saying, I know this is a bit insane, but we've got to take this to the next level. There were a lot of consultants involved because there were certainly areas of our business that Bic didn't have any expertise in. So, you know, there were consultants coming in to kind of do deep dives with us in various areas. And I think the original due diligence questionnaire had thousands of questions. It was a Excel document that had, I bet, 20 sheets of varying levels of functional areas and hundreds of, you know, sometimes up to a thousand questions on a single sheet. It was insane. Very overwhelming to begin with, but. How long did that process take answering all those questions and uh, any tactics you used that others could learn from? We definitely did the divide and conquer. As soon as we got the list, I went through it and did assignments across the team in terms of who was handling what And, you know, some were obviously handed off to our lawyers to manage, some to our accountants, some to, um, you know, varying parts of the business. But assigning that, and then we did hire a project manager who came in and did nothing but follow up on what's still outstanding, what's the documentation, getting it organized, preparing the um, disclosure schedules for the, the contract, you know, just really project managing all of us through the process. And what was the the total period between, you know, I guess typically you sign a, an LOI or a term sheet through to closing? How, how long was that period? We signed the LOI in, I'm going to say early November, and we closed the 1st of February. So the, the diligence was very hot, very heavy through November and December. Um, things were fairly tidy by the end of the year, and January was spent mostly tying ribbons, I would say. That seems pretty efficient, right? The lawyers were telling me along the way, you know, don't worry, this is going well, it's going smoother. You may not feel it today, but this is coming together better than I've seen. They had seen a lot of them. So it was good to have that little voice in the back of my my ear kind of telling me we were we were doing okay. If you're willing to to share, I mean, how difficult was that period for you? Is there anything beyond the workload that made that pre-closing period uniquely challenging for you? What what evolved for me during the process, I have perfectionist tendencies. And one thing I learned is you can't be a perfectionist. You know, you need to be transparent. I'll pick on myself here. You know, a question would be, disclose to us your accounting process and procedures manual, you know, and what are your what are your policies on this, that, and the other thing? And, you know, we're a startup. We, we um, maybe should have had gory detail policies that a Fortune 500 company would have that was 300 pages long, but we didn't. You know, we had processes and we had ways that we did things. And my first reaction might have been, oh, shoot, I should have had a policy on that. And then it was like, wait a second, Louise, you're a startup. We have a process. We follow it. I'm comfortable with it. But this set of questions is geared for whether they're acquiring a big company or a small company. So don't be thrown by the questions and be transparent and just be honest. And that got me through it a lot and got all of us through it. You, you, I think your credibility in the long run is um, what's most important. And if you don't know something, say you don't know it. If you don't have it, say you don't have it. And focus on what you do have and, and what the risks of 
having it or not having it is. We'd love to hear a bit about who is involved. And I know from my experience in, in M&A transactions, you know, one of the hardest parts is um, who you can tell. And there's this really awkward situation of who's in the tent. Uh, you have people that need to do some work related to the transaction, but can't know. And can you tell us how is that managed in this uh, acquisition? And how did you go about that? It also evolved as we went along. Certainly in the beginning, it was it was strictly the senior leadership team. In fact, not even all of the senior leadership team. We had to be very careful in our internal meetings as well in terms of what we were disclosing. Over time, a, a handful of other people were added to the list within particular functional areas that were coming up. R&D, for example, we had to get people involved that had the intimate knowledge of what's, you know, how our patent strategy is structured, just as an example. So there were other people that were brought into the process. And there certainly were situations where, you know, someone was brought in and maybe their immediate supervisor wasn't. So they had to be thoughtful. And we we certainly kind of knew the people and trusted the people that that could handle the, the level of um, confidentiality that was involved. And we, we had to keep kind of ongoing lists of who's in the tent and who's not in the tent. So we all could kind of have that on our post-it card next to us. So we had, you know, we're thinking about it in, in day-to-day conversations too. You had to be careful what questions you asked. That sounds really difficult. It was challenging. As a startup, you know, with limited resources, how did you manage an acquisition process where the buyer seemingly asked you, you know, thousands of questions where you didn't have resources, didn't have answers, what what do you do? Again, just be transparent. And Bic was very open about this too. And they they certainly didn't want us to be representing something that wasn't wasn't there. That that would be totally contrary to the reps and warranty insurance. So we were just transparent about what what we had, what we didn't have, and, um, you know, what we knew and what we didn't know. Hearing Louise share her due diligence experience and how confidentiality was important to the process gives me flashbacks to some of my own experiences. I found it could be awkward to decide who's involved and a challenge to keep negotiations a secret. But the ultimate goal is to close the deal. Enduring a bit of awkwardness is worthwhile to best serve the business. Now let's hear what advice Louise would give to other finance leaders that might go through an acquisition. When you look back at the process, what do you feel most proud about as a finance leader and as a finance team and what you were able to achieve for the acquisition? A couple things. I think the fact that it did go smoothly, I take a lot of personal credit for. It It was a lot of work, as we said, and this happened simultaneously with the holiday season, which is which is our biggest you know, kind of, and most important part of time of the year as a business. So, you know, that was kind of getting back to that who was involved and how did we manage it, that, you know, it was also important to do that in a way that didn't disrupt the ongoing day-to-day operations of the business. I also think that the credibility that we brought to the table from, you know, both myself and the, the finance team has also helped us through the transition. We we knew kind of going into it, you, you, these are going to be people that we're going to be working with for the for the future. So you have to you have to approach it in a way where you've got this the, a level of credibility that you want to you want to have in the long run. 
respect and, and to be a, a trusted team member. You know, credibility, honesty, transparency are all really, really important in these situations. Super important. Um, what did it feel like when, when it was finally done? Was there a pop the champagne bottle moment? A little bit, a little bit in the moment, but there were kind of the, it, the other thing that's, I think I didn't necessarily realize is that the, like we signed the agreement, the pop the champagne moment was days before the actual public announcement and days before the cash hit the bank. So it's not like, you know, when you think there's a, a moment it's a drawn out moment in these kind of transactions. Um, so there was, you know, the little pop of champagne when we signed the deal, the little pop when the when the press release went out and the bigger pop probably when the cash hit the bank account kind of thing. So well-deserved. What systems or procedures did Inkbox have in place that you were able to take advantage of and leverage during the due diligence process? You know, one thing that I, f I felt was really valuable was the data room and the, the data room process that we had set up and used throughout our funding history. Contractual agreements always went to one place and, you know, incorporation documents were saved, annual renewals, that kind of thing, insurance policies, tax returns, all of those things were largely stored in centralized files that we had access to. There was Certainly a lot of digging, you know, and I think at the, even like contracts, I thought we had a really good file and, we, you know, we probably spent, enough, you know, an inordinate amount of time looking for the last 45% or so that weren't there, even though we thought we had everything. But just having it there and having that discipline was really important and did really pay dividends. So I'd, I'd certainly encourage people to do that even, even when you're not in a phase because um, it's it's easier to have in place than it is to scramble and put together later on. Definitely valuable. So it's been about a year since you went through the acquisition. Uh, what's changed about your role as CFO and what's life like on the other side? It definitely has evolved. One of the bigger ones for my team has been moving from closing the books when we had time to close the books to closing the books in the five-day time frame that, you know, is with the big calendar. If, you know, in, in, the, in the old days, private company days, if, you know, we had something came up where we needed to delay the, the closing for a few days or even a week, it was not a big deal. You know, the quarter close might have been a little bit of a different conversation, you know, when we had investor reporting to do. But so that, that's been a change for the whole team. Certainly the information cycle with investors is much more quarterly, um, you know, centered on board meetings and things. Whereas now we have BIC, you know, kind of asking questions about our results the day after the books close. So that kind of constant conversation, monthly meetings, weekly meetings with BIC as to where we're going and how things are going um, is different than it was in it with an investor. Um, all good. They're, you know, they're people that are interested in the business and wanting to know what they can do to help us a lot more communication flow. So reflecting on your full experience for someone listening who's leading a finance team, considering selling the business or maybe being approached by a potential acquirer, what, what would your advice be for that person uh, who might be staring down the barrel of a pretty big workload and, and a little nervous about it? Don't be afraid. You, you get through. I, I find that you, you can do whatever you set out to do if you just block and tackle along the way and, and get it done. So don't, don't be intimidated by it. Um, 
we're all human beings trying to get through the process. So again, be honest and transparent as you're going through it. I think the one thing that became more and more obvious was the benefits that we gained as a business being a part of BIC. For us, as an e-com business, there's a limit to how far you can go as a standalone income business. We had expanded into Amazon and we're working on a handful of wholesale agreements, but BIC in their reach and scale can get us into a lot of situations to grow the brand and can gain brand awareness that were just outside of the scope of what we could do on our own. And so strategically, it ma- it made sense and the, and the timing made sense for us. For companies considering an acquisition, being acquired, that is, what would you encourage them to think about and consider about their acquirer beyond price that they should really think carefully about? Absolutely, culture. Make sure that these are people that you trust, you want to spend time with, you want to, um, as much as they can say, we're going to give you autonomy to run your business. They just paid money for you. So they better be people that you are comfortable with what their decision-making process is and how they look at things, what they prioritize, understanding why they're buying you. What are they ex- looking for and expecting from from the acquisition? Is it a product extension? Is it a whole new marketing area? Is it to change their culture in some way or another? Um, it's really, really important to know that and to, to think about how it's going to affect you know what's really core to your business. You know, I think that's one area where we've been, for the most part, really fortunate. Is is that because Tyler and Gonzalez did have that long-standing conversation before it became serious, you know, they did know each other pretty well. And they, they you know, I think Ty and Bray went into this with a pretty strong confidence that that Bic was a, a good partner for us. And that has paid dividends. Well, thanks so much, Louise. To wrap up, where can our guests find more about you and Inkbox? Well, first of all, please come visit our, our website, www.inkbox.com. Um, we're also available in a number of wholesale partners. We're at, in all of the Nordstrom stores um, or a number of the Nordstrom stores right now and online at Nordstrom as well as at Urban Outfitters. And that that list is going to be expanding pretty dramatically um, in the new year and some pretty exciting places that we're working very hard toward right now. Keep an eye out on the big press releases. They're, they do a good job of, of highlighting our business in there, you know, and, and talking about how we tie into their broader strategies long-term. So keep an eye out on the, the big quarterly and just their general press releases too. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you. Well, we shared advice on getting acquired that reminded me of the conversation I had with Matt Petro from Coconut Software in episode one about raising venture capital. Price is important, but so is culture fit. Both sides of the acquisition will need to work well together during and after the deal is closed. Under new leadership, it's likely that processes will change and that the finance team will need to adapt. And as a finance leader, you might face new expectations. At the same time, you'll hopefully have access to more resources. And I agree with Louise that transparency and honesty are key throughout the acquisition process. 
it's okay to not have an answer to every question in due diligence. If you're upfront about it, you'll build credibility with a new company, which will hopefully make it easier to work together in the future. I also think it's worth repeating how beneficial it was that Louise and Inkbox had saved important documents in a centralized place over the years. As she said, it takes discipline, but I can't stress enough how much easier it will make the due diligence process when the time comes. Thanks again, Louise, for joining us on Retain Learnings and sharing your finance experience. Thank you for listening to this episode of Retained Learnings. We want to reach as many Canadian finance professionals as possible. So if you have two minutes to spare, we'd love for you to rate and review the new show. Sharing on social media helps too, and you can tag at Flowcard. I'm Rob Kazam, and until next time, take care.